you are called in for a lineup that could send a man to prison for life. Once there, you pick a man from a lineup and the police reassures you that you have done a great job and that they are already looking at that man as a suspect. Five other eyewitnesses also testify they saw that same man. Nine years later, DNA evidence will prove you all wrong. This is the story of Lydell Grant. You know what will kill you? Life. Think about it. Think about it. Life. Living ends up in death. Living kills. Therefore, henceforth, otherwise, supposedly. (laughs) You know what else will kill you on a mental level? A life in prison without the possibility of parole for crime that you have never committed. Okay, now you're getting closer to the actual topic of the day because this is a podcast. What the hell is that? Are you a fly or are you just dirt? Okay, so uh, this is a podcast. It's called By All Means Necessary. My name is Maya. This is a true crime podcast. It's somehow lighthearted, is except except when it comes to actual crime. Okay, I get it out of my system eventually. And if you are new around here, I'm kind of a slut for like structure. So if you listen to the main episodes, I structure these episodes so that they're themed. So one month I cover pickup artists, another month I cover assassination attempts. Sometimes it's art thefts. It's it's all out there. Go listen to them. We try to figure out the motives behind crimes. But then recently I started making these minisodes into teams as well. So as you probably figured out, because I mentioned it last week, this month is all about testimonies, whether it is expert testimonies, witness testimonies, eyewitness testimonies, jailhouse snitch testimonies that have put people in jail. And, you know, questioning that. Can we trust them? Why do people use them? What are the stats on them? Like, how many people are imprisoned because of them? And this week's case, kind of like last week's one, will make you question everything that you have ever known about witness testimonies. Maybe it will make you question yourself and like how you tell a story in different situations, even though you're not testifying in court against somebody in a criminal case. Hopefully, I beg of you. And as I think is obvious, I have recorded the previous one just a couple of minutes before sitting down to record this one. Hence why I am incensed and insane and need to be institutionalized because I'm so pissed off. Like, these things piss me off so much. And yet I choose the topics. The topics are chosen by me. And these things piss me off. Like, why? Why do I do it to myself? Because... They need to be spoken about because we can't just blindly go as a juror and trust everybody that people are telling us because trials are there for a better story to win. And that is a problem. That is a problem because they're not YouTube channels, because they're not like some fake crime fictional story for a book to become a bestseller. They are playing with people's lives. Going back to my initial point of lives. Let's dive into this before I have, like, 20th meltdown of the day. Okay, story of the day. Let's tell you about Lydell Grant, who, by the way, legend. Legend. I have no other words. I would I would be so much more pettier if this was me. If this was me, God forbid. God forbid you imprison me for a crime I did not commit. I'm a Scorpio. I, I'm gonna... I will seek vengeance. 
it's not about you. It's about the crime of the day. Let's dive in. Around 11.45 p.m. on December the 10th, 2010, 28-year-old Aaron Shearhoon left this nightclub called Club Blur in Houston, Texas, running and screaming for his life. In this story, we won't know too much about Aaron. The only thing I could find out from different sources was that club he was at was a gay bar. It was a gay club. And there are a variety of sources stating that this might have been a hate crime, that Aaron was gay or transgender. I couldn't confirm any of that, so it's just like what I read in variety of sources. As he was running and screaming, he also opened up his shirt to show to the public that he had been stabbed. Aaron then tried to approach this other club that he has seen, but the bouncers didn't let him in. And they didn't let him in because of how close this man was to Aaron, just swinging the knife at the bottom of these stairs. And here I understand the fear, but also from their interviews later, it sounded like the bouncers didn't do anything to prevent this because they've seen this as a lover's quarrel. Kind of like Jeffrey Dahmer case, yeah, remember that? When they just let the guy walk into the flat with Jeffrey because it's like, this is too gay of a situation for us to intervene. Whereas the man is getting stabbed, like how is this a lover's quarrel? It's clearly escalated beyond anything like that, even if they were gay. Aaron, now realizing that these bouncers won't open the door to him, ran towards the parking lot that was nearby, trying to hide or possibly escape. But this guy followed him, stabbing him a few more times, and then walking away. At that time, Brittany Watkins was standing next to the balcony upstairs, and she heard the screams. So, she went to see what's going on in the parking lot, and she managed to catch a glance of the man that she would later tell police was this six-feet-tall man with a wiry build and long arms that grabbed Aaron by his jacket and then repeatedly stabbed him. Brittany then went inside of the bar to fetch some towels from the bartender and then ran outside trying to stop the bleeding from Aaron's wounds while somebody was calling the police. The ambulance made it within minutes, but it was too late and Aaron died just after midnight when he made it to the hospital. After his death, friends and family will create Aaron Shearhoon's Foundation for Change, whose main goal is to reach the agreement with the businesses in the Montrose area in order to encourage them to open their doors to people who are fleeing in danger. But now let's go back to the crime scene where the police started questioning these supposed witnesses. Here, if you remember, Brittany said that she saw a six-foot guy, wiry, athletic build, just like tall and big, with shortly cut hair. She also remembered the race. She said the man was definitely black. And then, after stabbing Aaron, he just kind of disappeared from that parking lot into, like, nearby woods, into the nearby trees. But it won't be until the next day when a tip came through to Crime Stoppers that the police will have their next viable lead. So, this guy that worked behind the bar called Dalon Wells, he called Crime Stoppers and reported a man who he thought was the attacker in this case. 
he said he saw a man get out of the car and then just walk away and then he went to that car and noted down the license plates because the car was parked up at that parking lot just a bit further away from the blur bar after running those license plates on the system the police was led to a guy named Lydell Grant and his white Pontiac his car and then they ran against his ID to compare like the height and the weight and it just happened to match. Then the police looked into his criminal history and Lydell spent one year in prison for using stolen credit cards. So now they're thinking, okay, maybe there is a potential here and we don't have really anything else to go off on. They continued to question those bouncers that rejected Darren from the club because they were closest to the guy that was swinging the knife in Aaron's direction and other people working at the bar. And the police assembles a photo lineup of six African-American males, including the picture of Lydell Grant. After they have their array of pictures, they bring in these witnesses, ranging from bouncers, people behind bar, and also two patrons. So there were seven witnesses in total. They bring them in, and six out of seven of them identify Lydell from that lineup. Something that the police officers have done during this lineup is a big no-no. It's not a standard for any lineups or how they should be done. And it's done in so many cases. And that is what is known as a non-double-blind manner. What this means is that the police officer, in this case conducting this lineup, knew or suspected who they wanted these witnesses to pick from this lineup. They suspected this person to be a person of interest or a suspect, which could possibly lead to these detectives kind of inclining towards this person or not even deliberately influencing this person in order to identify who they were already looking for. But another thing that it could allow for, and this is something that you can't really avoid, it's like our human nature, it is in our psychology, and that is that once you have somebody in the back of your mind as a suspect, once this witness possibly identifies them as well, then you're just gonna encourage them. You're gonna be like, great, that's great. No, you're sure, right? Like we agree on something. It is just as if, like, you were to meet somebody on a night out and suddenly bond over one single thing in common and you think, like, that's it. Like, all my days, this is my soulmate. This is, like, my best friend for life. It's just in human nature. And that's why you don't put the detective that is already familiar with this case to do this kind of photo lineups. Now, the only thing that the police has had is six people identifying the same person. Lydell Grant, and that anonymous tip with the license plates connecting and placing Lydell at that same parking lot. And with that, they went into the county court for an arrest warrant. When they brought Lydell in for questioning, he never denied that he was in the area on the night of the murder. And he said he would often visit these bars to sort of just, like, get away from the people and to relax. So, on this night, he was just outside Blur Bar. And this is when he spots this guy, Raul Rodriguez, who drove in from Austin, Texas for, like, a weekend getaway. 
Around 11 a.m., as they pass one another in that parking lot, they strike up a conversation and they realize they have Shitan in common. And obviously, Raul is just here. He doesn't really know anybody. So, he kind of clings to Lydell and they go to all of these different bars in the area for the evening. Around 1 a.m., the two of them left to go to this after-hours club near downtown Houston. And Rodriguez would actually testify at trial that at no point did Lydell leave his side, at no point was there enough time beyond maybe him, like, going to the toilet. At no point was there blood on his clothes, which would have definitely happened in an attack like this. Like, he didn't just go from this bar where they were at, back at Blur Bar, kill a man, and then come back and just continued parting with him. But now that the police has him in the interrogation room, they also had a warrant to search his car. And in Grant's car, they recover a wig, a ski mask, a Halloween mask, and knife in the trunk. But yet again, none of these items were ever linked via DNA to this attack. However, Lydell Grant ended up being charged for the first-degree murder, simply based on these witness identifications. The theory that the sergeant at the time had was, well, Grant had that criminal record, and his criminal record kind of went beyond those stolen credit cards. He was previously charged for an aggravated robbery, marijuana use, and theft. So, this sergeant's theory was that Aaron must have owed him some money for drugs. And that night, you know, was a payout night. And when he didn't pay, well, Grant stabbed him to teach him a lesson. And then he just decided to kill him. Prior to the trial, I don't want to say luckily, because there's just no luck in this freaking case. But finally, the Houston police did something that will prove to be detrimental later, and something correctly. They tested the scrapings from Aaron's fingernails that they collected in the autopsy. And the lab would report that they found a mixture of DNA from at least two people. What they further reported on was that Lydell Grant wasn't a possible contributor in the DNA mixture. But the case still goes to trial. In December 2012, at pre-trial hearings, his defense team tried to suppress the witness testimonies, saying, well, one of the witnesses never actually identified Lydell, there was this bias because of non-blind lineup, and also, not all of the witnesses were saying the same thing. Like, yes, they all identified him, would say that they have seen the same man from different angles, but it was dark. None of them actually came face to face with this man to identify him like that. But this motion was dismissed and the trial began. Houston Police Crime Lab DNA analyst testified that she conducted the analysis on the fingernail scrapings and that no conclusions will be made regarding Lydell Grant as a possible contributor to the DNA mixture. But what this meant is that she couldn't decide whether Lydell was a contributing factor, whether he was part of that DNA mixture. She couldn't make a conclusion. So, the prosecutors confirmed that for the jury and further asked her, so you can't exclude him from potentially being a contributor to this DNA? And this DNA analyst said no, she also can't fully exclude him. Raul testified that Lydell spent a significant amount of time together with him that night. 
He said there were no gaps in time where Lydell was out of sight and couldn't have committed a crime, but because six people prevailed over that, on December the 6th, 2012, the jury convicted Lydell Grant of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison. With no forensic evidence whatsoever, just hearsay from different people, just the eyewitness testimonies. But Lydell... His spirit, this man's spirit, is something else. It's something to be commended for. Like, if there's a single man here, in this case, that isn't just dying from life, okay, it is Lytle freaking Grant. Because as soon as he was jailed, he started writing to people. He wanted to make this story public, and he wanted these appeals to go through, because he knew that this is bullshit. At the time, he didn't know much about law, but he started spending more and more time in prison library, reading the books on it, studying for hours each day, looking at his own case, and looking at how the forensic evidence played part in it. And he started thinking, well, if they could identify Aaron's DNA under his own fingernails, why couldn't they identify the other person's DNA? Why couldn't they make a conclusive report on that? Months would pass, and finally he got a letter back. This is so painful, how slowly this went by. Because if you remember, he was charged 2013. In 2015, the motion seeking DNA testing of the evidence was filed. And in 2018, the Innocence Project of Texas, along with this Texas School of Law Innocence Clinic, began reviewing the case. And these two organizations further looked into the DNA evidence, because they knew if there was a single chance for exoneration here, that would be it. And they realized, basically, once they analyzed those DNA samples, they put them in a graph, so they could tell the probability of a particular person's DNA matching the sample. But as there was a mixture of two DNAs, They couldn't really extract and interpret the second sample because it was like a mush of blood under somebody's fingerprint. So they couldn't really interpret the probability of one person's DNA matching that sample. That is until they figured out that there is a higher science. That is not the right term. Basically, instead of using human DNA analysts to interpret this DNA, There were computer software programs that were developed to do that and to reduce the subjectivity in the interpretation of these DNA samples. It sounds religious in a way, like, oh, higher science, you believe in God. No, it doesn't. It's dumb. It's not a terminology that anybody should be using. It's not like they were following your footsteps and they were going to go on the streets tomorrow and be like, hey, higher science proves this. Yeah, never mind. They're not lawyers that are ended up in Lava Island. <laughs> you know how awkward it is in those reality shows? This is a sideline, if you haven't figured out. You know how awkward it is watching a freaking reality show and realizing that, like, these people have, like, menial jobs, like, oh, they're all teachers, lawyers, work for, like, the home office and shit, and you're like, what are you doing here? Why are you on this show when clearly you were born to be, like, an influencer or you want to do that instead of being a lawyer? Why did you study? Why waste money on a degree when this is the pathway? All right, okay, back to the story, because you lost your plot again. One such higher science software program was created 
by this company from Pittsburgh called Cybergenetics. And this company has already been involved in analyzing samples from unidentified victims during 9-11 attacks. The lawyers on the Grants case decided this is worth a shot because Cybergenetics at the time was running this program called True Allele. And running Lytle's DNA through this software determined what a human analyst couldn't. And that was that his DNA didn't match the unknown male profile that was found on that scene. Now, the Innocence Project of Texas deals with hundreds of these cases on a daily basis, and they knew that this in itself wouldn't be enough. They needed a name. They had a DNA. They needed to run it by a system in order to get a name. With this new evidence, the Innocence Project of Texas liaised with their partner lab in South Carolina. And this particular lab had the access to the FBI database that is known to anybody who has ever watched a true crime show that's called CODIS, or Combined DNA Index System. CODIS at the time had about 14 million convicted offender DNA profiles stored, on top of 4 million profiles of RSTs, and about a million of the DNA profiles that were obtained from the unsolved crimes. But this search of the database revealed one single name, the one of a 41-year-old Germerico Carter. Houston police was informed, and they interviewed Carter, who confessed, suddenly, after nine years, that he indeed, yes, stabbed Aaron following an altercation on the street. And he said, yeah, I I kept quiet for nine years, but yeah, uh, the guy that you have in prison never had anything to do with that. I just kind of like, you know, didn't want to be in prison, so that's why I never confessed. But yeah, good job. Good job catching me. Good job. Really, really thought I got away with this one. Okay, I'm making this a bit sillier than it actually was. The detectives did go to Atlanta and like found him, interrogated him, and pressed him for this information. He didn't cave to begin with, but then they said they have his DNA, like, underneath the man's fingertips. And then he said that Aaron was just simply walking near him that night and told him to get out of his way. And according to Carter, Aaron then hit him twice and spit at him. So, again, according to Carter, Aaron was the one that started the fight and pulled out a gun. But then Carter got a control of the knife, and then he couldn't just let him pass away, so he followed him all the way to the parking lot. Carter perfectly matched the description at the time. He was also of a very similar age. He was 32. He was a black man of 6 feet 2, tall, weighing around the same weight, that Lydell weighed at the time. And he also had a criminal history. He was also charged for possession and for burglary, and only months before killing Aaron, Carter was arrested for, (laughs) wait for it, attempting to swallow crack cocaine blocks away from where Aaron was killed. With the further help of the FBI, they also learned that Carter was definitely in the area around the time that Aaron was killed. After this murder, Carter moved to Atlanta, where they also found he was charged for stabbing a roommate four months later. So, if you compare that to, like, stolen credit cards, you can kind of see that, you know, the charge kind of matches, you know, the the profile of a killer, like, the violence. 
You can kind of see that the charges match a violent offender, not to pull out the criminal minds card, but like, you know, one person was violent as fuck and unhinged, and the other person, yes, had criminal history, but for non-violent charges. After the DNA analysis ruled Grant out, he was released from prison on bond in November 2019, while the authorities reinvestigated the case. Basically meaning he still wasn't just freed. Like, he would still need to go back to court in order to prove that he is innocent, in order for them to actually let him leave and remove this charge of his record. And this, the fact that they couldn't exonerate him properly and that they had to reinvestigate the case, was purely based on the faith of eyewitnesses that runs so deep that despite of all of this overwhelming evidence, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals refused the exoneration request. Like, the man is clearly not guilty, innocent. How can you refuse the exoneration? What are we doing? Instead, this Court of Criminal Appeals asked all of these six eyewitnesses that originally testified to respond to his claims of innocence. Finally, in May 2021, this happened a few months before, Grant went back to trial and his lawyers filed for the murder to be taken off his record and also for some compensation. So, Grant is eligible for more than half a million dollars in compensation for his time behind bars. $80,000 a year. Not enough, not enough. What the fuck? Nine years of his life were wasted. And on top of that, he gets health insurance, which should be for free. I know I'm speaking from the perspective of somebody having NHS, but America, you can't be using health insurance as a privilege, especially not in these kind of circumstances. Finally, on May the 19th, 2021, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals declared Grant actually innocent. Did you know Aaron? And what do you hope for as far as justice in this case? Well, I hope that the killer be apprehended, for, for one. Uh, I never knew Aaron, never seen him a day in my life, never had any encounter with him. But the justice system, the district attorney's office, the prosecutor, she painted a big, big picture for the jury, and they believed her lies, and they convicted me wrongfully. What do you have to say to those people who, who sent you to prison for life? I don't have no bitter in my heart for them. Forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. Hey. Forgive them. I forgive them. That's the advantage that I, that I have over a lot of people. I know how to forgive and I know how to love. But I don't have no bit, no bitterness in my heart for none of the prosecutors. I just, I just want people to realize that you have salty people up in the seats up in the Harris County District uh, Attorney's Office. Tell us about the fight you put up for yourself. You started writing oh. the Innocence Project of Texas in 2015. What were you saying? How, how adamant were you about getting your case to them? I mean, I really put my heart into it. I, 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 made, I wrote heartfelt letters to the Innocent Project. It wasn't just the Innocent Project of Texas. I wrote everybody really pretty much that I thought about, even publications, uh, tele, uh, television stations. I mean, I wrote everybody that I could, churches, and everybody ignored my letters. But an old dude told me, he said, Lydell, it don't cost nothing but a stamp. So I wrote everybody that I could, and guess what? God sent my help through the Innocent Project of Texas, and I thank Michael Logan Ware for just reaching out to me when I when he heard my cry. Amen. And he went to work. Amen. He went to work. Michael Ware went to work, man. Amen. 
Lydell, now 44, said that he is ready to move forward. He said he is writing a book about this experience. He is looking to get a degree in audio engineering. And he also said he really loves trucks. So he is looking to also upgrade the car that he used before his conviction that he bought in 2007. And I just, I just love this man. Like, the way that he doesn't have bitterness, the way that he isn't looking for much, it's just beyond me. It's just such an amazing person. How many people do you see wrongfully convicted that have this positive outlook? Like, that would never be me. I just... I just can't imagine. Now, the true question here is, why would six different people identify the same man? So, let us talk lineups as a conclusion to this video, and as uh, why the hell this happened. The transcript from Lytle's trial revealed that the detective in charge of the case administered the lineup to the eyewitnesses. Because this isn't the case of a double-blind lineup, this administrator is, by default, more likely than to either ask witnesses about the suspect or smile or kind of nod or give some approval gestures when the witness would be looking at the suspect, that somebody they are already looking at as a person of interest. But this couldn't have fully been the case here, because if you remember, all of these witnesses were overly confident that Grant was their person, that they positively identified the right person. One of them reported that he had identified Lydell without any doubt or hesitation. Another one stated that the killer's face will forever be burned in her memory. And this led people looking back at this case to believe that all of the witnesses here received some confirmatory feedback following their identification of Grant. So, even if you are immediately shown an array of pictures and you say that this is the person without hesitation, if then this police officer is like, okay, cool, yeah, that is somebody we are looking at as a suspect, like, that is a good identification, like, you really helped us out then you're less likely to look back at this photographic array. You have just gotten an affirmation that you have done a great job. You're out of there, moving on with your life. Three of the eyewitnesses in this case reported that the detective told them they picked the same person that other people did. Also, there was a couple here that remember that they discussed their selection with one another and confirmed each other's decisions. Like... This is this is worse than Brooklyn Nine-Nine lineups. This is like, you can't do this shit. Still, though, the best rendition of I Wanted That Way out there. The best rendition... Like, I don't know where they found these actors that would hit such high notes, but I'm thankful for you, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, for shedding the light on lineups and how they shouldn't be done, and also for the best rendition of this song, man. Two other eyewitnesses said that the detective complimented them on a great job following their successful identification of the man that they were looking for. Research on eyewitness testimonies has actually shown before that such confirming comments actually have huge effects on the eyewitness testimony. Because it doesn't just inflate your confidence, as I mentioned, like, it is human psychology, like, you want to be approved of. You want your words to have a meaning and to, like, bring some change, like, bring justice. But also, it leads people to falsely remember having been 
this confident all along. So even if you come in and you don't feel so confident, suddenly, because of this approval, you might feel like, no, 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 I was always like 100% confident this was the man. And what this in particular leads to is that these kind of witnesses are usually more persuasive to jurors. Because, of course, if they go on stand and six people say 100%, not a single doubt, I have seen this man killed another person... Well, the jurors are going to be like, well, of course, like, I'm going to believe this over the evidence. Like, they have clearly seen their face and identified them without a single doubt. And on the other flip of that coin, remember when the Court of Appeals had to speak with all of these eyewitnesses? Well, one person actually said, to be honest, the day the police officers came to me with the lineup and asked me to pick someone, I told them I didn't see the guy. But they said to look again, because he was in there, and other people had already picked him. So, he picked Mr. Grant, even though he didn't really feel that this was a guy. Which, guys, I beg of you, if you're listening to this, just don't crumble under pressure. Like, I understand you want to be approved of, we all do, but in certain instances, you kind of gotta go against it. And also to think that this isn't under any pressure, like there's no sleep deprivation, this isn't like one of those violent interrogations, there's no like torture involved, there's no deprivation of like sleep. There aren't hours where you haven't been like fed or given a sip of water and the people still crumble. Just based on approval is so fucking scary. Like, please don't play with people's lives like this. If you're ever in a situation, just say no. I don't... It's none of these people. I'm not sure. You cannot convince me. Stop talking. Leaving the room right now because you're talking and I don't wanna... I don't wanna put an innocent man behind bars, man. As if this wasn't enough, what further studies on eyewitness testimonies have shown is that this confirmatory feedback can also change witnesses' memories of the original crime, which in turn would make them less able to recognize the actual perpetrator. So, like, years down the line, or even if it was same day down the line now, with a confirmatory feedback, as I mentioned, they're not looking back at those pictures. They don't care. They think that they are 100% correct. And that kind of diminishes the whole purpose of a lineup if you are looking for the right suspect. And in Lytle's case, what this meant was that little would be gained from speaking to these witnesses again when he was to be retried on his appeals. And now, really, to hit that nail in the head, the not-so-fun fact... In 69% of DNA exonerations, 252 out of 367 cases have involved eyewitness misidentification. I can't do math, but that is like... That is almost... That that is like two-thirds or so, you know? (laughs) I can't do simple math. But that is way, way too many than there should be on something so simple. This means that eyewitness testimonies are a leading contributing cause of wrongful convictions, and the National Registry of Exonerations have actually conducted studies and was tracking this since 1989, and they determined that more than 76% of DNA exonerations include witnesses who identify the wrong person. And unfortunately, of those wrongfully identified people, 65% of them are black. 
And that concludes the case of miscarriage of justice when it comes to Lydell Grant. What truly terrified me in this case, while I was researching, I was just really thinking about it, apart from the whole eyewitness testimony stats, is how many people are involved in one single exoneration case. Like, no wonder in the state of Texas you have five, six K people that are falsely accused, possibly, allegedly. Because just think, in this single case, how many people had to get involved to really fight for it, to push for the resources, to know exactly what needs to be done as well, so to be qualified on a certain level, in order to exonerate one single man, one single person, and how long it took. It should not have taken this long. And that is exactly why it's important to be talking about these cases so that it doesn't happen in the first place. So these people don't land in prison over nothing, over hearsay, over somebody leading them to saying that they have seen that particular man. But that's enough of me venting for the day, now that I have just talked about two miscarriages of justice within one day. I'm gonna go detox, you know, I don't know, have a bath, have a shower, like wash it all off, rinse it all off, forget that it all happens every day to like thousands of people. And by doing so, but also by critically thinking about these things, we do what? We make this world a better case. <laughs> what? A better case? A better criminal case? We do what? We make this world a better place. One motive at a time. Motherfuckers! Oh, the joints are cracking. Someone needs her back to moon D. You know what I mean. Okay. <laughs>